Hi, here's Florian for 99 Startups, and I'm today here with a new guest, so introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Mal. I'm the founder of the Center for Erotic Intelligence. I'm a clinical sexologist and relationship expert. So what does it mean if you're a sexologist, or what does a sexologist and a relationship expert do? So I started off as a sex therapist, and I saw the gap that exists between therapy and medicine. So a lot of times I had cervical cancer and a lot of times doctors are not trained on how to speak to patients about sexual health and wellness. Um, even when they're going through cancer or they're going through um, medical conditions, I know from the male perspective, there's prostate cancer, um, colon cancer, a lot of things that can affect our bodily uh, functions. And so when I saw the gap, I realized, wow, nobody's really um, you know, helping people when they come out of these, um, procedures and, you know, they're in remission or they're cured or whatever it is when they're finally healed, they don't really have someone to talk to. Um, and so that was when I decided to get my certification as a sexologist. Um, you have to put in quite the number of hours in order to be certified. You have a supervisor, you work with individuals, couples, And you see everything from erectile dysfunction to polyamorous relationship structures um, to people transitioning and their partners having to um, sort of be resilient and interact with that. So, uh, so yeah, that's how I got started. <laughs> so, and what does uh, your center do then? Like, this is your story as person. So, what was your goal with uh, your foundation of the center so i when i became a sexologist i started working at the museum of sex and at the museum of sex i came across some new research about the internal clitoris and when i realized that the majority of the clitoris is not just the little nubbin up under the hood but it's this huge massive internal structure which you can learn all about on the website um i decided to have my own clitoris sonographed so they use technology which is fairly new, about 2009, 3D sonography, um, to sonograph what this structure looks like when it's excited. So if you imagine a penis when it's flaccid versus when it's erect, um, we didn't really have a picture of what the female excited internal organs looked like when they are engorged with blood. So once I had it sonographed, I had a digital recreation of the sonograph created and then published it for Museum of Sex. And that's when everything kind of went crazy. That was in 2011. And um, so I started just getting thousands of emails from people. I don't know about sex ed in Germany, but in America, sex ed is awful. They teach abstinence only. Um, and I was getting emails from kids. Uh, one girl was drinking bleach because she thought it would prevent pregnancy. Another boy was spraying insecticide on his genitals. I don't know where they got these ideas. But when I read these emails, I was like, no, don't drink bleach and don't put bug spray on your genitals. You will die. Like, this is bad. And I realized, wow, the state of sex education in the U.S. has to change. Um, so Obama signed into law that every publicly funded college and university in the U.S. had to offer some sort of consent education because sexual assault was so bad on college campuses here. And I saw an opportunity in the market. So I created an erotic intelligence education program 
left the Museum of Sex, started my company. So uh, the major focus of the company is uh, we sell educational programming to colleges and universities so that they can actually have their consent ed and they don't have to scramble to put a program together. Um, And so we teach consent education, pleasure education, um, sexual and reproductive health, which is what most people think of as sex ed. And then we teach interpersonal relationship education, which is a big focus on social and emotional intelligence development. We also are working to sonograph 100 internal erect clitorises to show the variation. As you might imagine, 100 penises are all going to look pretty different hard in size and structure and shape. So we want to show um, that that the internal structures are different as well. And then we also do a lot of activism. We got rid of the luxury tax placed on tampons and uh, feminine hygiene products here in New York State, um, working with some other NGOs. So research, activism, um, we do workshops and retreats for couples and individuals. So we do a, a full sort of wide range of things, but education and research are probably the two main focal points. Awesome. So we will definitely put a link in the blog post for all of that. Um, you said like you, you worked with uh, people um, on the extreme side, like if um, they had problems with their sexuality uh, because of um, illness. Uh, would you say there's a key learning you took out of that um, to um, which uh, showed up in these extreme situations? What was a key learning that I sort of... Yeah, learned? a key learning about, about humans. Like, I, I hear it once that, like, um, you learn best from extremes. So... Um, um, I think one of the key insights I've had from healing the body has been healing the mind. And I think a lot of times when our bodies aren't functioning the way they used to or the way we want them to, especially after we've come through something major like cancer or we've healed, a lot of times it has to do with negative self-talk and self-worth and self-beliefs. And it's, that's, you know, healing the emotional and mental part of ourselves after coming through something so traumatic is really, really imperative. Um, I have an example of one guy that I uh, recently worked with. He is gay. He had problems with uh, maintaining an erection. And it only happened when he was with somebody that he liked and wanted to date. But when he would go meet a married guy at a hotel room just to hook up, he wouldn't have any problems. Um, And the problems would exist even when he took Viagra. He wouldn't be able to keep it up. So... We worked three sessions together and he's now able to function again. And it was really all about what he believed about himself, how he judged himself, negative self-talk. And it's, you know, it's a hard loop to get out of that habit of constantly being cruel to yourself. So to summarize, healing your mind means um, accepting yourself and having a positive outfield? Yeah. In general? Okay. Um. So uh, the uh, the next topic is uh, technology like plays a way bigger role in our day-to-day life. Um how is your perspective on like technology and our day-to-day life and especially also in our sex life like how do you think about if you hear technology and uh, sex sex tech. <laughs> sex tech. Um it's I mean it's a full circle of good bad 
wonderful, ugly. Um, on the good side, we have technology that's enabling us to explore our bodies more, um, enabling couples to have um, better sex on, in some ways. We're able to have long-distance sex with teledildonics, one of my favorite things to say, um, with haptic technology. Um, but then, of course, we have dating apps, and then we have this thing called the paradox of choice, which states that between five and nine options, our brains experience cognitive dissonance and basically want to shut down, not choose any option, or be unsure or unhappy with the option we choose. And so, whereas once upon a time, we had our sort of hookup or mate selection or date selection from our geography and local community. Now we've got thousands of options and it turns sort of some of these, it, it sort of dating apps sort of turn it into a, more of a game of self validation or ego versus actually meeting somebody. Um, so I think the paradox of choice is prohibiting a lot of people from actually like trying and jumping in, even if it's just a hookup. Um, but then the other flip side of that is like I used to hook up with people I met on Craigslist all the time in my 20s. Craigslist was like the Tinder back then. Um, and that was amazing and shaped me and who I am and taught me so much about people and myself. Um, so I think, you know, there are opportunities using technology. And the other flip side is digital media consumption um, and social media consumption Specifically, we're seeing soaring rates of depression and suicide. A new study was just published in The Economist this week um, showing that uh, Instagram users uh, suffer from depression significantly more. We have a loneliness epidemic sort of happening in society, even though we're more greatly connected than ever digitally. So I think you know, there comes a time when we have to make a conscious effort to not be absorbed with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and stories and FOMO and just live our freaking lives and, you know, spend more time in self-reflection than crafting the perfect Instagram post. Um, so I think it is kind of taking a toll on us and it's definitely taking a toll on our social intelligence. Um, when I work with college kids and we're in the consent ed part of the course, it blows my mind how inept people are to pick up on the subtle nuances of body language, of breath, of whether or not a person feels comfortable. And I think our social intelligence is diminishing because our heads are in screens all day and we're not engaging and interacting face-to-face -face with people as much as we used to. Wow, now we have uh, several topics we should go into. Um, first, if I remember right, the paradox of choosing, there was a study which showed that like, if you show people 23 options of the ice cream, they will freak out and are more likely to don't take one. But if you show them the option vanilla ice cream or choco ice cream, then like, um, they, get, they, they decide on one way more often than like, they have 23 options. I think that was a study which uh, showed that. So, and you say that, like, because of the easy access of partners like Tinder and OkCupid and all these things, um, it's more likely that, like, it's a situation like the 23 ice creams. And um, even if we choose or we don't choose, or we don't choose to seriously. Correct? I mean, even if we don't choose or, or we choose and it's not so serious, usually we're unhappy with the choice we make or we just kind of shut down and we're like, I don't even want to choose. I'm over it. Yeah. 
So that's sort of where dating apps have taken us. But on the flip side, there are plenty of people who meet and get married and plenty of people who hook up through dating apps. So yeah. So, and uh, you say like one of the problems is that like technology way too much involves us and brings us away from being social then brings us closer together and be more social. Um, the easiest trick would like, yeah, do a shut off time and like put your phone away. Uh, but I think that's a bit too too simple. Um, do you have ideas how you could motivate people more to shut off their phone? Like what would be good ideas to motivate them? I think creating meetups, I mean, even if there was an app that, that encouraged people to kind of go on the app and look and say, oh, there's this event happening at this time and you walk into a room and maybe it's a town hall meeting where you're talking about relationships or your career, whatever it is in some sort of situation where you can connect with people and put your phones down. Um, I know the Royal wedding made everybody hand their phones over. I think we're going to see an uptick in more and more exclusive events where phones aren't allowed, pictures mm. aren't allowed um, because when that's prohibited, then we are actually present and in the moment and focused on what's happening. So that's interesting. So that means like you could make in, uh, events which are really interested, like which people are interested in, and then you force them on the entrance to put their fa phone away. And this could be a, like a wedding, a party, or it could be also go to a politic meeting or like some, some nightclubs or something. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. Um, And then we had the topic, like you said, there's also some tech which are more on the positive side and helps people. Do you have like more specific examples on that? Yeah. So, um, so in terms of apps, I have a favorite app as a woman and my partner's always like, guys need this app too. So they can get like a red alert when you're on PMS, <laughs> like what's happening, but it's called the hormone horoscope app. And, um, and it basically will say you have plunging estrogen today or, you know, your testosterone's up, so you're probably going to want to masturbate a million times. And so it kind of gives me um, – and it'll suggest foods to eat. So it'll say, you know, your mental power is decreased because of plunging estrogen, so maybe you want to eat some spinach or peanuts to kind of give yourself a boost. Um, so it's really helpful in terms of its suggestions, and it's very well researched. I've spoken to a few endocrinologists about it. So that's a great app. Um, in terms of toy, there's another um, thing called Desire Games, which is cool. It's a deck so, of cards. Wait, the first app, how does it know if my testosterone level is up or not up? Well, it's it's based on, it's it's a female cycle, so it's based on yeah, your okay. mental so you yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not monitoring. I can't wait for biofeedback technology to happen. We're starting to see that more and more. Um, and that will be amazing because that will basically be able to kind of give us a heads up on what we're feeling before we're self-actualizing it, I think. Um, but then other apps that are really great, um, there's, um, there's a thing called Desire Games, uh, which is cool. It kind of encourages couples to ask questions and to play around. There's a really great toy for couples to utilize during sex. Um, two toys, actually, by Dame Products. One is called Eva and one is called Finn. Um, those are great for couple sex. One is just like a vibrator you wear on your fingers, and the other one's a hands-free toy to wear during sex so you don't have to worry about moving it around. 
Um, and then, of course, I love everything by Amor Lee and Unbound. Unbound has this great toy called the Squish, which is like a stress ball. The harder you squeeze, the harder it vibrates. So there are a lot of um, – WeVibe has a toy where it can be uh, controlled from halfway around the world. So I could be here, you could be there, and you could be controlling the vibrator hypothetically. So there's some really cool things on the market. I don't think they're the type of things that will – save or, or, you know, help a marriage if it's in deep trouble, but toys are fun. So why not play with them as adults? We loved them as kids. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. It's always smart to stay more like a kid as adult and to see yourself as adult. <laughs> um, so what do you would say is the, the biggest advice for relationships? Because if you say, um, the technology makes us more difficult to build deeper relationships and like the deepest relationship you can have is a relationship with another, with another person. Um, so what you would say is the biggest advice for uh, that field? So I think in some ways love is focused attention. So whether it's the love of our craft, the love of our partner, um, it's where we focus our attention is where our energy goes. And I think we need to make a conscious effort when you're in a relationship. And I, I tell this to couples all the time. If you wake up and the first thing you do is grab your phone and check your email and check your social media, you're fucking yourself by it, like not getting fucked because <laughs> you're, you're focusing your attention on that and not on yourself or your partner. So I tell partners, don't sleep with your phone in the bedroom And when you wake up, spend at least two minutes just staring at each other in the eyes. You don't have to say anything. And it is phenomenal what that one exercise does to relationships and for people. Um, just to be able to look another human in the eyes for an extended period of time. Um, and then, you know, make a conscious effort. When you're eating dinner, put your phone down. My partner will sometimes take my phone and put it in his pocket. And I'm like, what the hell did you do with it? But it's it's like a fun, cute, flirtatious way of being like, hey, I'm here. And it, it's good. Yeah, it makes absolutely sense. So you said like um, where we put our energy is like the most important thing. And like put it on a Facebook messenger doesn't count. Or like put it on a messenger in general. So what do you think? Where it goes in the future? Like how what we would talk about in five or ten years i think actually it's going to be more of this i don't think technology is going to like overtake the human race i know sex robots are like the huge rage right now in the headlines because everyone likes talking about them and we love novelty and Westworld and all of that um but i don't think they're going to overtake um these three brain systems that evolved 4.4 million years ago in our first ancestors, which are the drive to have sex, the drive to have a romantic partner, and the drive to have deep cosmic attachment with another. It's not to say somebody couldn't fall in love with a sex robot, but it's not going to be the majority of humans. You know, a sex robot does not have a, a conscience so that it is able to desire you the way another person can make you feel desired. Um, so I see them nothing more as toys 
Um, and I think we're going to be talking more and more about what I'm talking about now in terms of the pushback against um, digital media consumption. It's sort of the same way we saw fast food and McDonald's take over um, and even TV dinners, you know, it's all this, this rage, this new food technology, it's going to change the world, we don't have to cook anymore, it's great. And then there was an, a, a diabetes and obesity epidemic, and now we're seeing this return back to the slow cooking movement and farm to table. So I think we're going to see collectively society just try to recalibrate and rebalance um, what makes us feel good and happy inside? And I don't think spending hours on Instagram is that. So how how you would say we can motivate people to understand? Like it's not about a short term uh, gratification; it's more about a long term um, thing. Which I think it is. Like that's like the reason why Instagram works because you could get the short term gratification, happiness, but it doesn't make you long term happy. What you would say could help people to realize that? I mean, I hate to say it, but it's probably just going through the pain of realizing short-term gratification is not the, the key. And it's going to be going through that shit storm of like, fuck, I'm not happy. How do I fix this? Um, can I curse on here? I hope yeah, I sure, you can. <laughs> um, curse as much as you want. Oh, good. I'm, I'm a Brooklyn girl, so <laughs> it comes natural. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just people have to go through it, you know. Um, and it, it's, I mean, I compare it to sort of staying healthy and staying fit. Like maybe somebody has to get a little overweight and go, shit, my pants aren't fitting. I have to do something about this. Um, and when that happens, then they, they start to make the effort. So, um And I mean, I think one of the reasons we're seeing like yoga and meditation come about, we've seen sort of the diminishing of uh, the dogma of religion. And so people don't have the same communities that they once had. And they are flocking to their they, to these retreats and yoga and all this stuff because it is a time when they're forced to put their phones down and be present. Um, and they're able to connect with other humans. So, I mean... Hopefully they can find sort of some sense of self-regulation and happiness through whatever practice, whether it's yoga or masturbation. But <laughs> So um, I agree on you. Like you can definitely learn through pain. Do you have an idea how we can help the next generation to don't make this mistake? Because like for all the generations which are coming after us, They are way more used to phones and technology than us. So, how you could to, like could help them to not go through all the the mistakes we made or we we make right now? I mean, I see so many parents handing their iPads to little babies, and I call them like the new pacifiers. Like, and the kids cry. They with the iPad. They with the iPhone. And it's just like, it blows my mind that, and I'm not a parent yet, so I shouldn't judge. I shouldn't, I have no right to say like, ah, you shouldn't do this or you should do that. You know, everybody's different. Everybody has to figure it out. But I do think kind of having designated playtime outside, des designated time where, you know, the technology is off limits um, and setting up sort of controls for self-regulation as 
an embedded virtue in our kids from a young age can be helpful. It's not to say it's not going to change when they get old enough to be on Snapchat and what have you, but anything that encourages, you know, kids to just get in nature, connect with nature, be outside. Um, there have been studies to prove that this changes our, our brains. It's great for neuroplasticity. So, and, and changes them in positive ways. So I think anything we can do to encourage kids to play together, not be inside so much is, is great. And to, you know, not rely on technology to entertain them, but to actually have conversations with them and talk to them like real humans. Yeah, it's a really fascinating thing. And uh, in the area where I live here, you hear kids every day outside. Like every day you hear the kids running outside. And I'm so fascinated by that, that they, <laughs> they, they are every day outside and like doing, playing and, do, and screaming around and running around. And I'm wondering why it's like that, because like even in my youth, I was sitting a lot of time in front of a computer, in front of a TV already, even if the internet was not so big. So I'm guessing that one of the main reasons why they do it is because like all do it, like all are outside and then you're like uh, building up the social the social group and then you've, it, it's a self-going thing. So, but I'm also guessing it's not not normal in, in Germany because like it's a living arrangement area so like all houses in one group and then you have like one yard there so it's more natural making that mm, just as advice I know like you're not a mom and I'm not a dad but like if someone would ask you for advice like how you would motivate the kids <laughs> to go out and like don't sit in front of a computer or on the phone all the time I mean, it would be, hey, we're going on a hiking trip this weekend, you know, pack your bags. And here's how, how I think the parents' involvement in that is a, is a big role. Um, I know spending time outdoors, fishing, boating, hiking was a big part of my childhood. Um, and I know my mom screaming, go outside, was like also a big part of it and even though I wanted to stay inside and surf on AOL back in the dial-up days um, or watch TV or play video games you know it was very much I had to go play outside and I'm, I'm glad because a it built up my immune system I beat cancer twice and I played in the dirt um, <laughs> but B it, it teaches you I don't know, it, it teaches you a lot of self-reflection to be in nature and to realize how um, how tiny we are on the relative spectrum of, of the timeline and how our time here on earth is just a blip and how insignificant we are compared to this huge planet around us. So I think it, it definitely affected a spiritual side of me that gave me a deeper appreciation for humanity and, and mother nature. Yeah. I think also never ideas because like uh, we need also think for the city people Because I'm, I'm sadly guessing that like uh, our cities will grow way more, at least for the next five to ten years. So nature is a less easier option. So I'm guessing the other option you have to motivate kids to go out is like to let them make team sports, like play soccer. Yeah. Because you can't play soccer on the phone. <laughs> at least way harder in an 11 uh, people team. So 11 player team. So um, I think the other good option you have is like to 
to um, let your kid um, ha be a part of group activities regularly. So and then um, this this probably also helps to to learn the how you say this the the pick up human human behavior and human uh, small uh, commu commu uh, communication subtleties. Yeah, huge. I think also like music is. I mean, any type of of group, um, whether it's a sport, music. I was in band, in choir. I was the big band nerd. Um, so I think those things are all really good. They're they're exercises and activities where you're forced to be present and yeah. focused. Thing that's not your phone or a video game. Yeah, sounds pretty good. So, what's your favorite book? Oh my goodness, my favorite book. Um, any book by Brene Brown. She's really, really spectacular. I just got done. Oh, it's it's over there. But I just got done reading Rising Strong. Okay. A book on resiliency. Um, so that's that's like at the top of my list. Um, Sexual Intelligence by Dr. Marty Klein is a huge recommendation. The Erotic Mind by Jack Moran. Great book. Um, yeah, I would say those are any, anything, if you want to understand about like humans and anthropology and, um, why we love, or uh, why we choose who we choose anything by Dr. Helen Fisher is fabulous. The anatomy yeah. of love highly recommend. Yeah. This, this name is re rings a bell, Dr. Helen Fisher. Yeah, cool. I will definitely link the books, uh, in the blog, in the post. And my favorite last question is, uh, if you could spring back in time and tell your 20-year-old self something, what you would tell her? I would tell her not to party so much <laughs> um, and to not put so much of her self-worth into um, whether or not she's loved in a relationship. Um, I think I settled into some bad relationships when I was younger, and I think a lot of us have just this need for validation. I think cultural conditioning teaches women that we're worthy when we're loved. Yeah. So all we want is somebody to love us and, and to say, see, look, I'm worthy world. Someone loves me. And um, so I had to go through a couple of like frogs before I found my prince, so to speak. And, um, and they were tumultuous relationships and very difficult. Um, and, I wouldn't have put up at this age. I would have never put up with that shit. I would have been like, no, bye. So <laughs> I would say, don't put up with the shit from boys um, and find your self worth and the way you're able to impact people and help others and, and your purpose in the world, not in whether or not somebody likes you. Um, and then also realize that as a woman, you have the one thing um, that is infinitely in demand you have an eternal supply of. <laughs> so wait, so first I need to defend your 20-year-old self. Why she shouldn't make party all the time? Uh, I mean, I'm glad I partied. I learned a lot, but I probably partied too much. <laughs> um, and I'm glad I did because had I not partied that much, I probably wouldn't have had all the crazy sex I had. And that definitely taught me a lot. Um, but I could have still had crazy sex and learned those things without um, putting myself so much at risk. Um, 
Yeah. So. So but, what yeah. what you what you could have said that, that um, you brought your twenty year old self to think about it because like the interesting thing is. Um, if if you are in this situation, um, just say, yeah, come on, don't party so hard, don't party so much. It doesn't help because it doesn't gives you the the idea in your head why you shouldn't do this. So how you would say to your twenty year old self, in her perspective, how she finds the limit there and why there's a limit and why this is good. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm. And if I had a twenty year old daughter and I knew she was partying, yeah. I would know that there was nothing I could say to her to get her to stop or to change. Um, yeah, I, I think from, I did a lot of cocaine, so I probably would just be like, yeah, go have fun, but don't do so much cocaine that you miss class, girl. Like, get your shit together. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I actually have a journal entry, and it was to my 22-year-old self. Okay. Um, I could read you a little bit of it. Um, so I said to my 22 year old self, Oh, my darling, sweet pea, I know you're filled with anguish and uncertainty. You did the right thing. And I am proud of your strength and courage to leave him. Learn to embrace change sooner. It will spare you years of waste and heartache. You have a friend who drains all your purpose and positivity and refuels it with drugs and magnetism. You follow him because he eases the blow to your collective bad decisions with humor. You think I'm crazy for telling you this now. And I could hear my 22-year-old self saying, how could you ever not be best friends with this guy? <clears throat> When you finally get him out of your life, everything changes and you find the love of your life. You'll have a few more in between first. When you feel what you think is romantic love, it's not your heart. It's dopamine surging through your brain. The greatest art you can master is to be mindful of this feeling and not assign meaning to it. It takes many years to truly know someone and will take many more for someone to truly know you. Um, and then I talk about drugs. Uh, drugs are a hurricane. You'll spend years rebuilding and recalibrating for your continued choices to prioritize partying. Um, and so, yeah, life is really funny how it all unfolds. It's never what you think. I'll spare you the whirlwind of details about your next relationship. But remember what I said about dopamine. <clears throat> um, and then I, it says, I think you keep bad people around you because you're scared of being alone, but one day you'll love being alone and revel in the opportunity. So yeah, that was some stuff I said to my 22 year old self. It's <laughs> like really, really good last words. <laughs> It's a really good last <laughs> words. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. Um, thanks for having I, me. I, I... Thanks for listening to the podcast. Speak to you next time, guys.